Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. And we're looking now into Haggai chapter 2, almost the last part. There's going to be one more part next week. We're going to look into chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. So turn your Bibles to there or open up your phone to, to that passage. Just keep it there for now, and then we'll refer to it once we uh, get into the Word. Um, but I just wanted to give us a recap, especially for those of us who haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, just to fill us in on what's happened so far in the book. It's really short. It's only two chapters. And we split it up, and we've really been talking about this whole journey that as the Israelites have come back from exile, from Babylon, that they've been now been commissioned and challenged, and the prophet Haggai has challenged them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And now as they've obeyed that we've seen all the things that God has been speaking to them about. I I think the first week we talked about how uh, we must seek the heart of God in in order to do our part for God. And that was when uh, Haggai was challenging, you know, why are you in these paneled houses when the the temple's in ruins? And there was a challenge for the people to be able to build and rebuild. The second week, we talked about how God is working in us faithfully so that we can do things fruitfully. So after the people actually obeyed the word of God, uh, they needed God's strength to do that. So Haggai gave them words of encouragement, reminders of how God is the one who's actually empowering them to do God's work. Last week... Part three, we talked about how God will lead us into our future as we trust him in the adventure. If you remember that many of the older Israelites from the previous generation, they remember what the temple looked like, and and, and it's magnificent. But then so many people were disappointed to say, oh, it's not the same as it used to be. And so it was really an encouragement to trust, to take steps of faith, to believe that God is going to restore things to something that we can't even imagine right now. There's going to be a future glory that we're looking at. And now in part four, we're going to look at what Haggai talks about, the real restoration of the Israeli community. And if you think about it, so far it's been a whole process of rebuilding the temple, being encouraged, but true restoration hasn't happened. True restoration hasn't happened because in the beginning, they were in their paneled houses, but they were in drought. They were struggling. They were going through so many many things. And as we look into this passage, it'll pick up on how Haggai actually blesses them using God's word. And so as we think about this whole concept of restoration, I I wanted to ask us, how many of we love movies with happy endings? We love movies with happy endings. Some of us, we're like, no, I don't like happy ending movies because they're too cheesy. I want some real stuff that kind of is not so predictable. Um, But I, I think there's something about us that we all still crave a happy ending or some kind of satisfied fulfillment of that movie. For, for example, like Finding Nemo. Can you imagine if that movie ended and we never found Nemo? Like what would happen? Like the, the whole, what would be the point of that movie? You'd be like, wow, that was such a horrible movie. We never found Nemo. And, and there's so many movies that I was thinking about. I just looked up on Wikipedia, like top 10 grossing movies of all time. Like the movies that have made the most money worldwide. And if you look at every single one of that, those movies, there's a common thread. There's a common theme. Right? Uh, I'll show some pictures here, and spoiler alert, if you haven't watched some of these movies, it's too late. I'm sorry. These movies have been out for a long time. So if you haven't watched them by now, sorry, I'm going to spoil some of them. So um, on this uh, first photo, uh, first movie, you can try to guess what it is. On the first photo here is uh, on the left side, it's like this huge tree that's burning down, 
and that's kind of in the middle of the movie. And at the end of the movie, what happens? Okay, so hopefully those of you who know by now, it's the movie Avatar. And at the end of the movie, what happens? Even though the guy, he ends up passing away, then there's this like magical nature formula that brings him back to life and he's able to be with the native people of that planet. And it's a happy ending. It's a restored ending. And look at the next movie. Okay, if you don't know this movie, I gotta pray for you, right? Uh, it's the movie Titanic. And of course, the big letdown is that the boat is sinking and people, and Jack dies. Jack, he passes away, unfortunately. But what happens at the end? Even though, yes, Jack is really dead. It's not like he came back to life. But the end of the movie, those of you who watched the movie, remember, you sat through all three hours. Rose has this, I don't know if it's a flashback or dream, but at the very end, she has this vision of Jack on the Titanic and they're dancing together. It just gives you this different feeling, this magical feeling, this wonderful ending of everything that happened. The third movie that I wanted to show us, uh, I, I, I don't know, I just got into it and I was, reading, uh, I was watching some of the battle scenes of Avengers Endgame all over again. I love like, huge battle scenes and then, you know, when they're fighting and, you know, uh, uh, Thor is breaking down Captain, uh, Captain America's shield and you're like, oh my gosh, how is that even possible? It looks like all hope is lost. And then all of a sudden, what happens? These like portals all of a sudden appear. And you're like, whoa, everyone's back. Right? And you realize like the snap worked and all is not lost and everything is going to be okay. And then Captain Marvel saves the day. And then, you know, of course, Iron Man, he snaps everything back into what it's supposed to be. And it's a happy ending. Last one I wanted to share with you is my all-time favorite movie, Lion King. I love Lion King. And uh, if you know, in the middle of the movie, Scar takes over, and uh, he, like, totally takes over Pride Rock. And then, you know, when Scar takes over Pride Rock, what happens? It's gloomy. There's no fruit. There's nothing. It's desolate. And it's like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And then at the very end, of course, the last scene is also Pride Rock, but with Simba. And now it's like baby, Simba's baby. I don't know what Simba's baby is called. But anyways, uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture. Everything restored. Everything has come back to life. And, you know, other movies, like that, you Star Wars, right? What happens at the end? Sith Lord dies, and then the new Skywalker comes. You know, Ray becomes the next, the last Skywalker. Uh, well, Harry Potter, what happens? Voldemort dies. Harry Potter dies, but he resurrects. And then he, everything is great. And then you see the epilogue, and then he has kids with Ginny Weasley, and everything's great. Right? Like, every single movie comes with this kind of happy ending. And, and I think it really speaks to something that we really desire. There's a deep desire for restoration and for hope. I mean, can you imagine if some of these movies ended poorly, <laughs> right? Like if, uh, let, let's just say uh, Avengers, Thanos like snaps and then people, half the universe is gone and that's how the movie ends. You're like, what, what, what just happened, right? Or Lion King, Scar just takes over and then Scar just takes over, right? It's like, what kind of movie is that? What kind of story is that? It doesn't pull at our heartstrings. There's something about restoration that we crave. And I think when we look at this book of Haggai, I think he really speaks to that. There's a longing for the people in Jerusalem to long for that restoration, to long for the renewal and restoration of the temple, to long for when their crops can bear fruit and they can live in prosperity again. And like us, there's a longing for that hope in our day-to-day -day lives to experience 
a renewal or a restoration in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And that's why I want to give us the one thing, the one thing that restoration is God's inward work in us so we can be an outward blessing to those around us. Restoration is God's inward work in us so that we can be an outward blessing to those around us. So I want to give us a uh, couple of minutes in huddle groups just to talk about two questions. The first question is, why do you think we as humans crave happy endings or a sense of restoration in the stories that we tell? Whether it's in the movies, the fictional ones that we make up, or if it's in our own personal lives, in our families, our colleagues, our workplaces, our friendships, why do you think we crave those happy endings? And secondly, second question is, why do you think it's so difficult to see deep and full restoration happening in our own lives? When we look at reality, our lives oftentimes aren't like those movie endings. But why is it so difficult for us to experience that if we crave it so badly? So go ahead, talk about those two questions. I'll give us six minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll dig into this passage. All right, well, hopefully you had a good discussion. Apologies for those who I spoiled those movies for. Just go watch them after this. Um, when I talk about four, I want to talk about four things that true restoration really is. Um, true restoration is really a primarily a heart issue. It practically requires repentance. It's purely by God's grace, and it purposefully is about blessing others. And so let's look at the first one, how it's primarily a heart issue. We're going to look at Haggai 2. I'm going to start by reading verses 10 through 14. So let's read that. I'll read it for us. It says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. Someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food. Does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So when we look at this passage and we talk about how it's primarily about a heart issue, uh, we, we have to look at this passage and see that Haggai is not talking about all these laws. He's, there's kind of this back and forth between Haggai. He's asking these priests these questions who are, they're supposed to be the experts of the law. They're supposed to know every detail. They're supposed to carry out all the duties. So he's asking them, but not because Haggai doesn't know but because he's trying to make a point. And we know that he's making a point because in verse 14, what does he say? He says, so it is with these people. So whatever, he, whatever point he's making, we have to pay attention to because he's saying that point is directly relevant to your situation. You Israelites, you're in this situation because of this issue. So what, is, what are these two issues? We, there's two parts of the law he talks about. The first part of the law is a reference from Luke 6, verse 27. We're not going to look into it, but I, I just want to summarize it. That he's asking if someone carries holy meat in the fold and that fold touches something else, does that other thing become holy? And the answer, the priest answered correctly, is no. Only the things that the holy meat touches becomes holy. Anything else that touches that following thing, like the fold of the garment, doesn't become holy. And the second one, the second law, is that there's an unclean person who's touched a dead body. So because the dead body is unclean, it's diseased, all this kind of stuff, if a person touches it, then that person becomes unclean. But 
What's different from the first scenario is in the second scenario, the unclean person, if they go and proceed to touch something else, then that other thing does become unclean. We see this in Numbers uh, chapter 19, verse 22. It says, and whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean till evening. And why was this so important? Why was this so relevant for the people? Well, because when we think about this whole concept of uncleanness, it had to do with sin. Uncleanness was not just a ceremonial thing, it was a moral thing. It was a, it was a sin issue before God. It prevented people from entering into God's presence. And so, of course, no one wanted to be unclean. And so any sight or any touch of uncleanness was a big problem. And when we look at the law, and we look at the reason why Moses even gave all these laws to the people, why was that? was because he wanted to be in relationship with them. He wanted to be connected with them. So if anything would cause them to be unclean, then that would be a huge problem. Well, how do we know this is primarily a heart issue? Because there are all these ritual laws. We look at Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. And this is a prophet talking now about the people, about their uncleanness. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like, and read it together in the yellow, polluted garment. Became like a polluted garment. Read it together in the Amplified. It says, for we have all become like one who is ceremonial, unclean, like a leper. And all our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. Ceremonially unclean, yes. Like a leper, ceremonially unclean. But what does it show? It shows a, a distance, a separation from God. A sin issue. And that word filthy rags, you know what it's translated in the original Hebrew? Menstrual garment. Brothers, for those of you who have no idea what that means, don't worry about it. When you get married, maybe you'll find out. But those sisters, you know what that looks like. And it's not pretty. It's disgusting, frankly. And that's how disgusting being ceremonially unclean was to God. And it wasn't, again, just an external thing, but he's saying in Isaiah, he's saying, we have become like this. He's not saying outwardly like this. You're saying, we have become like this. Inwardly, like, we have become like this. It's our hearts that have become like this. And that's what Haggai is saying. Jesus says the same thing. What does he say? It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of him that makes him unclean. It's a heart issue. It's primarily a heart issue. Some of us are like, well, Pastor Bo, but there's all these things that I, and I just don't see how everything is a heart issue. Not everything possibly could be a heart issue. And what is this transference of unclean versus clean, like holy mean? What, what does this have to do with my life today? Uh, many of you, um, uh, especially with the COVID and pandemic, like I think we're wonderful now at being clean. Like not just ritually ceremonial clean, like medically clean. And I think some of us, we're like, we're, we're on that hand sanitizer like crazy. You, know, you carry that little bottle around, pop it open, and like, it's like every 10 seconds you put on a little bit more hands. You, you, you put it on when you enter the restaurant, and then when you sit down, you take off your mask, you put a little bit more on. But can you imagine if every single time you, you put on hand sanitizer and, and you use the same metaphor of cleanliness or uncleanliness, and, and you put it on your hands, can you imagine if I were to say, hey, I'm putting on hand sanitizer, and after I put on hand sanitizer, my hands are clean. And then as long as I touch your hands, therefore your hands are now clean. That makes no sense, right? It makes no sense to us. 
If anything, we're like, no, I got to put hand sanitizer on my hands in order to be fully clean. Oppositely, like if you didn't put hand sanitizer on your hands and then you put your hand all up in my food, am I going to eat it? No. Are you going to eat it if my dirty hands get up in your food? No. There's something about like dirty hands that as soon as you touch it, it makes that unclean. But if my hands are clean, just because I touch something doesn't mean your food or your hands are clean. And we all know that intuitively. We all understand that intuitively. That's why we're constantly putting all, spraying down everything. And, you know, every moment we get, I mean, some of you don't care. Some of you are just like, oh, just walk in and just do whatever. I mean, those of you, I don't even know what to speak to you about. But, but it's, really a meta, it's really an illustration that shows the condition of our hearts. That this sin, this heart issue, this primary heart issue in our lives, it really spreads to everything that we do. This heart issue, it spreads to everything that we do. And just because we do something good doesn't cover over for the evil and the sin that's in our hearts. Like, you cannot get holy like hand sanitizer by just doing some other things. You can't be like, hey, I read the Bible today, therefore I'm, I'm more holy. Uh, you cannot be like, oh, I prayed my prayers today, therefore I, I am more holy. You cannot say that, oh, I did my quiet time, or I went to church, or I went to life group, and therefore I am more, all of a sudden more holy. Like so many of us, we, we cling to these external signs. And many of us, we grew up in the church, and we base our righteousness on external works hand sanitizer, and you think somehow that touching it or engaging with it automatically makes you pure and clean, and you're like, oh, you, no one can question me because I read the Bible today. No one can question me because I did my quiet time. No one can question me because I sent out my soap to all my WhatsApp groups. No one can question me because I went to church. I went to life group, and that person didn't go to life group. You're so mistaken because cleanliness is not an issue of that external, because it can't, that, that external, th that holiness of that prayer, that Bible doesn't transfer to your heart. But sin, it does transfer, it infects every part. That's the heart, that's why Haggai is saying, so it is with these people and with this nation before me, with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. And that's what he's speaking to us about. That we all have a depraved heart. We all have issues in our hearts. Like, let me just give you a couple examples. Giving. I don't know why this just came to mind, but just giving. And we're like, oh, why the pastors every single week? They're always talking about giving. They always give a Bible verse. They always say, you know, this and that. We give this budget update. Why are they talking about money again? Why do they always say it's a heart issue when the, all it is is really just, okay, I just, it's about money, it's about finances. And you don't really see how much of a heart issue it is. You don't see how your view of money in your heart affects everything else that you do in your life. The greed that you have, the stinginess that you have, you don't, you're like, oh, I'm not a stingy person. But you're stingy in so many different ways, not only with your finances, but with your time, with your relationships, with how you spend time at work, with how you serve in life group. I'm willing to guess that if you're stingy with your giving and your money, that you're stingy with your time in life. You're like, ah, yeah, no, I don't have time to serve. I'm too busy. There are too many things going on. That's because it's a heart issue. 
It's not an external issue. No amount of Bible study, just because you studied the Bible, is going to help you to say, like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good because I read the Bible. No, it's a, it's a hard issue if you've never really dealt with that. And I think the problem is so many of us, we focus so much on the external behaviors that we forget that it's an internal disease that we have inside of us. Some of us, we're on the other side. We're like, oh, but I have good intentions. And as long as I have good intentions, then, then at least that should be good enough. But by you, you saying you have good intentions, you're assuming that all of your intentions are good and there's no impure motives behind what you're doing. And, you're, and they're like, oh, why, are, why is my life group leader always questioning me? Why are they always asking me the question? Why are they asking me why over and over and over again? Just, just give me a break. I have good intentions. That's what I wanted to do, but... Look deep inside your heart. Look deep inside your heart. Because if you're not generous, you're stingy, you're sinful in one area of your life, then you're very likely to be the same way in other areas of your life. And I hope that you know, as leaders, we're not trying to ask you questions to condemn you or to criticize you. We want you to see your heart for what it is. Because only when you see your heart for what it is, then can you experience real change. Some of us, we just get really discouraged. And I know that oftentimes we bring up this verse. Some of you might be really familiar because I think Pastor Seth and I, we love preaching this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. It's the one that talks about the heart is deceitful beyond all measure. You're like, yes, the heart is deceitful beyond all measure. My heart sucks. I suck. Everything sucks. And then you get into this what mode? This depressed, emo. I can't talk because that's me too, right? So this is your pastor preaching to himself. We get into this like very self-centered, very self-focused, insecure mode where like, well, my heart sucks, so what can I do? I might as well just like be slumped like this in all my life. But you don't know scripture. Romans 7, verse 21 to 25, in the New International Version, it says, so I find this lot where this is Paul speaking. Let's read it together in the yellow. It says, although I want to do good, what? Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of, what? The law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What an amazing hope that we have. That even though our hearts, those of you who have think that we just have good intentions, our hearts are purely good, or those of us who think that our hearts are only bad, you miss it here, that there's two parts of us waging war inside of us, law of the spirit, law of the flesh. But what is Paul's conclusion? He says, what a wretched man I am. He takes responsibility. He realizes it's a heart issue, it's a him issue. He doesn't say, oh, what a conflicted man I am. Here I am between two sides. No, he doesn't say that. He says, what a wretched man I am. It is our heart issue. It is my heart issue. And the only cure is Jesus Christ. Until you recognize that it's primarily a heart issue, then we're never going to experience that restoration. Let's move on to the second point. Not only is it primarily a heart issue, but it practically requires repentance. It practically requires Repentance. Let's read verses 17, 15 to 17. It says, Now then, 
consider from this day onward, before a stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Haggai here, he's, he's doing an interesting thing. He's linking one prophecy that he gave earlier on in Haggai chapter 1 to now the second prophecy that he's talking about. He's talking about how the, the whole measure and cup, right? He, he says they try to invest this much, but they only got what? Less than half. And that was what Haggai was saying in chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. It's not there, but I'll just remind us. He says, you have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. So he's saying, you're doing all these things, but there's no fruit coming out of it. And there's a real reason for that. And the question is, why doesn't Haggai just simply repeat the same thing? Why doesn't he just say, you've sown much, but you harvest a little? Like, why doesn't he just repeat that? It's very interesting, the wording that he uses, especially in that last verse where he talks about blight, mildew, and hail. You'll notice that there's an earlier prophet, his name was Amos, that Haggai probably knew. And Haggai is using the very same language that Amos used when Amos was declaring curses and and prophecies against the Israelite people. Amos 4, verse 9 in the NIV, it says, Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them, and read it together with what? With blight and mildew. That same, same words right there. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as what? as I did to Egypt. Haggai is intentionally using this wording, not only to mirror Amos, but you'll notice, what does Amos do? Amos is using that wording to to point the people to what? To Egypt. And what did the Egyptians experience? The plagues. And what were some of those plagues? Blight, mildew, locusts, all that kind of destruction, hail, Why was Haggai doing this? Why was he referring to the Egyptians? It's because everything that the plagues and the punishment, it wasn't like God was just like, you you, you ought to be punished and I'm just going to punish you and that's all. God is not that kind of God. Some of you have this skewed view of the Old Testament that the Old Testament God is this like angry and like frustrated and bitter God. And then the, the New Testament God is like this, Nice, happy, cuddly, loving God. Like, you have totally a wrong view of God. The Old Testament God is the same God as the New Testament God. He is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is the same God. And if we see that he is the same God, then what is he trying to do? Constantly, since Genesis all the way through Revelation, what is he trying to do? He's trying to get his people to turn back to him. We see that in verse 17, yet you did not turn to me. Haggai is saying, you didn't turn to me because my purpose was trying to get you to turn back to me. Amos says the same thing. He says, you have not returned to me. What did the Egyptians not do? What did God do? He, he sent Moses to give the Egyptians the plagues. Why? So they could turn to him. But what did Pharaoh do? He didn't. He was rebellious. He was stubborn in his heart. What were the Israelites doing throughout the wilderness? What would they not do? They would not turn to him. They turned to the calf. They turned to themselves. They wanted to turn back to Egypt at some point. And now, what is Haggai saying? You're doing the very same thing. You're turning to yourself, these paneled houses, all these things that you trust in for yourselves. You have not turned to me. 
And I, this, is the, this is the hard truth that is so hard for us to, I mean, it's easier for us to understand, but hard for us to live out. And that you cannot turn to God and other things at the same time. Like, I mean, if you think about it physically, it's impossible, right? How many of you can turn in two opposite directions at the same time? Like, can you imagine, like, okay, I'm turning left and right at the same time. It doesn't work. You cannot turn to two different things at the same time. You, can, you cannot serve two gods. You can only serve God or money. And that's the problem is we, we just keep on insisting our, 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 on our own way. We never turn. We never repent. And that word repent in the, in the original language it actually means to turn. I mean, this is, a, this is a Hong Kong thing, right? Like, I don't know if any of you, I know I can't see you, but if you're on Zoom, just raise your hands. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been just walking on the escalator in the MTR, and then someone just, like, really, like, brush, like, really fast, like, runs next to you, brushes against you, like, sorry, sorry, and then they just keep going. Oh, I hear some amens. And then you're like, are you really sorry? <laughs> they didn't even turn back, right? There's a boom, sorry, and then they just keep going. They didn't turn back. They didn't look at you. They didn't see what happened. Do you feel like they're really genuinely sorry? Do you feel like they have genuine repentance? Like they, they actually feel like what they did was wrong? Or do you feel like it's just something just to cover up? I mean, how many of us were like this? I, I'm like this. <laughs> I remember when I was young uh, and I just wanted to get my parents off my back. What I would just come before them before anything happened. I knew I did something. Sorry, 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 sorry. Let's move on to the next thing. And then you know, Erica called me out for doing that too. When, when we, when I would do something, and I preemptively say sorry, not because I was genuinely sorry, but because I didn't want to bear the consequences of what would happen. And so many of us are like this. We don't actually turn. And if, if we do turn, we're not turning to God. We're really just turning to ourselves or we're turning to other stuff. That was me when I, when I said sorry. It was not really turning because I was sorry. I was just turning to something else so that I wouldn't have to bear the consequences of the direction that I was going in. I, I might be dating myself, but uh, there's this game I really enjoyed playing when I was young. Uh, it's called Snake. And uh, some of you who've maybe grown up, I don't know, if there's like 3D games of Snake now where it's like there's three dimensions. You go up, down, side, left deep and forward. Um, but I really love this game. It was like one of the only games that you could really play on those old computers. It was either like that or Minesweeper or like Free Ski or whatever. I don't know. I probably dated myself. But pretty much Snake works with this little like line. And then the line is moving constantly. You have no control over the fact that it moves, but you could change the direction that it goes in. And then as you change the direction, you're supposed to collect the apples. Well, I guess on the older version, they're just white dots, right? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, in some versions, they're apples. So I remember them as apples. And then each time, and I, I clearly snakes don't eat apples, but that's just the game, right? So, so as the snake eats the apples, then the snake gets longer. And the goal of the whole game is to make the snake go around, eat as many possible apples as you can without it crashing into itself, right? But the problem is, as the snake gets longer, the, the space is limited. So inevitably what happens is the snake will crash into itself. I mean, I've, I've never seen anyone win this game. Maybe I'm just not good enough. And maybe some of you, like, I won the game, Snake, and praise the Lord that you are awesome at the game of Snake. But what happens is that as you turn, inevitably, the snake will run into itself, and you get game over. You're never going to be able to win the game. Because what is the snake doing? It only has so much space to turn. 
And the longer it gets, the less room it has to turn, and eventually it's going to crash into itself. And I feel like, in a weird way, this game is like a microcosm of our lives. Like, why? It's because every single time we turn, or every single time we get confronted with something, or every single time uh, uh, something happens to us, we have an opportunity to turn to God, but you know what we do? We turn to ourselves. There's another apple on the, on the trail, another opportunity to repent, and what do we do? We turn to ourselves. We turn to another relationship. Someone calls us out, and we're like, oh, yes, and you say, oh, yes, yes, thank you, leader, thank you, LCG, I will change my ways. Or you say something like, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. I got to reflect on it. And then a day goes by, week goes by, month goes by, nothing happens. Why? What would you do? You just turn to yourself. Or, or you realize, okay, that was really bad. Man, Netflix is really, really bad. I can't procrastinate with Netflix anymore. But then what do you end up going to? Instagram. Twitch. I heard Twitch is the new like streaming platform where it's no longer games. It's streaming for everyone now. It's too bad you can't use TikTok. I mean, you, some of you use VPN and stuff like that, and you try to go into TikTok. You turn to something else. And that's the heart condition. That's why the first point. It's primarily a heart issue. But it's because we're constantly turning to ourselves or to other things. And we never repent is because we never turn to God. When's the last time you turned to God? When's the last time you got down on your knees and you prayed and you said, Lord, forgive me. I cannot do this anymore. I can't do this on my own. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy. I'm constantly going about my own life, my own ways, and I just can't do it anymore. Some of us, we never say sorry. Some of us, we, we are always saying sorry. Some of us, we don't say sorry, but we just try to fix things thinking that just by fixing it, that's kind of our implicit sorry, right? Because words speak, uh, actions speak louder than words. But never in one of those options did you turn to God. C.S. Lewis kind of summarizes, and he says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be, and if you have taken the wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We've all seen this when we do arith arithmetic. Some of us, we hate math. I'm like, Lord, please, don't, don't bring me back there. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. Hmm, I wonder if some of our GPAs will increase if we use the strategy. There's nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. End quote. I think some of us, we're on the wrong road. And we're, we're on this road, and we're trying to turn a little bit left, a little bit right. But the problem is we're on the wrong road, and it's going to get you to the wrong destination. That's what Jesus talks about. If you're on the road that is wide and leads to destruction, then where are you going to end up? No matter which lane of the road that you're on, you're going to go where? To destruction. But if you're on the narrow road, 
the road that leads to eternal life because you're what? Turning back to God. Then that's the road that's going to lead to restoration. That's the road that's going to lead to hope. If I were to give one more verse just to illustrate this point, Psalm 51, 10 to 12, this is King David. When he committed one of the most horrific acts of sin, he combined murder with adultery, with lying all together. I don't know how many of you have done that in your lives. But he didn't turn to other, well, initially he turned to other things. He lied, right? He, it was Nathan the prophet that had to get his attention. But after he was confronted and convicted, he turned to God. And in the first couple of verses, he said, against you, God, only you have I sinned. And he picks up on verse 10 to 12. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And read it together. It says, cast me not away from your presence. From your presence. He's turning back to God. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God is the only one who can restore you. And if you are on any other road, the relationship road, the career road, the family road, the children road, any other road in this world will lead you to destruction. But only the road that is narrow, that is through Jesus Christ, will lead you to eternal life and restoration. And I pray that we would be on that road. I want to give us another huddle group, two questions. I'll talk about the, the last two points. Why is it hard to see the deeper heart issue in everyday situations in your life? Why is that so hard? Why is it so difficult? And then secondly, how can you tangibly turn to God and practice genuine repentance this week? How can you tangibly turn to God and practice genuine repentance this week? I'll give you another six minutes or so. Talk about it in your huddle groups, and then we'll finish off with the last couple verses. All right, well, hopefully you had a good time in your uh, breakouts and your huddle groups. I know that we share this week after week, but I really want to encourage us, especially those of us who are Zooming in together with life, life groups, if you're having some good conversation and there's some you know, things that you just weren't able to share fully, uh, I want to encourage you to stay in that breakout room after the Sunday celebration. Just you know, Let's say your life group comes together, takes a photo together, and then afterwards they say, hey, can, can we get put back in those breakout rooms? We just want to pray and minister to, onto one another, and I think that will be a great way to respond. So uh, let's just continue on with the third point. We talked about how true restoration is primarily a heart issue. All right, It's also... Uh, practically requires repentance. And the last, third one is that it's purely by God's grace. It's purely by God's grace. We'll read verses 18 to 19. It says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And one thing we have to notice in this passage is there's a chronology. There's a timeline of things that happen. And and he's asking the people, consider, think through, really internalize. What what has happened? What what is the order of things that have transpired? Because after they came back to Babylon, they didn't build the temple. They built their panel houses. And then after that, Haggai pretty much confronted them. They started to rebuild the temple. But then the problem was their crops and their experience was still, they're still not doing well. They're, they're trying to build the temple. They're trying to do whatever they can. And then they're able to finally lay the foundation. But even after they lay the foundation, 
Now Haggai is giving this prophecy and he's saying, I'm going to bless you. He says, from this point on, I'm going to bless you. And the question is, why does God give this promise? And I think a lot of us, we have different conflicting reactions to this kind of grace, if we were to call it, because this is purely about God's grace. We have conflicting responses. It's just one, one, of us, one group of us can say, oh yeah, because uh, we are the people, and we uh, responded to Haggai's word, and we were obedient, therefore we deserve this blessing. Because we laid the foundation. Look at, look at that beautiful foundation. It is, isn't it gorgeous? Like, God, come on. Bring it, bring it now. But if you remember, the foundation was, was crappy compared to the old temple. And the temple wasn't even fully built yet. They didn't actually finish the command that Haggai had done. So those of you who think that you can earn grace, you're mistaken. It has nothing to do with you, what you can do. God's promise has nothing to do with them fulfilling the full obedience of what they, because they didn't fully obey. And it was nowhere near, if you, if you wanted to grade the temple, they, I don't, this is just my conjecture, right? That the new temple they were laying probably got it like a C or a D, right? 2.0 GPA, temple-wise. The old temple was like an A+, plus. Solomon in all his glory, and he had all the resources of the world. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It has nothing to do with how you were able to earn or, or, or somehow merit this good work. Others of us, we're on the other side. So if, if those of us who are like, oh, I can earn it, there's other of us, others of us who are like, oh, I, never, I, could never do, I could never get this. No matter what, I, I could never, ever get this. And in a weird way, you're on the same side, a different side of the same coin. Like, no, 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 God, God you should never bless me. God should never provide for me. God should, he should never become my father. The father's heart, I don't know. And I don't understand because it's just so foreign to me. So why, why would God ever bless me? Because I've never done enough. I'm always falling short. It's that insecure pride that we have that prevents us from really experiencing that. But, but this is what God is saying. He says, I will give it. I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. How can you argue against that? That is what God does. That is his grace. That is his mercy. But when we look into this passage, we realize that the center of the Bible, it's not just about the blessings. It's not just about the, the, the provision. It's not just about the crops. It's not just about the harvest that he's talking about. I want to read this, uh, the quote from Sinclair Ferguson. And this is a, a quote to preachers that I think was really helpful for us to understand if we look at the whole Bible in its entirety and what it's about, and what Haggai is really looking forward to, because the people of that time, the Israelites, when Haggai was speaking to them, the, 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 probably the only framework they had was prosperity in their crops, prosperity in their civilization, civilization in their society. But Haggai was really looking forward to something greater, and um, this is what Ferguson says. He says, there is a center to the Bible and its message of grace. It is found in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Grace must therefore be preached in a way that is centered and focused on Jesus Christ himself, never offering the benefits of the gospel without the benefactor himself. Let me read that last part again. Never offering the benefits of the gospel without the benefactor himself. What is he saying? He's saying the gospel and the blessing is not so much about what you can get. It's not so much about the provision that you have. Part of it is. But really, it's about whom? It's about Jesus. 
how Jesus Christ is the blessing that we need, is the restoration that we long toward long for is the hope is the holiness is the cleanliness is the the temple that we're longing for i mean think about it think about the problem with with the uncleanness and and the stones that the people are they're they're laying these stones in hope that somehow that laying these stones is going to bring them a greater sense of prosperity but the problem is what does Haggai say you're unclean everything that you do is unclean so if they're laying these unclean stones what is it going to do it's going to be unclean Everything they touch is going to be unclean. But who was the one who everything he touched, he made it clean? It was Jesus. Think about Jesus when he walked on this earth. What did he do? People flocked to him. Why? Because every time they touched him, what would happen? They would be healed. The bleeding woman who was sick for so many years, as soon as she touched him, what happened? She was healed. And not only Jesus, it was transferred to what? His disciples. That when Peter and John were walking, people what? They flocked to him. People flocked to Paul because they would receive healing. And it's Jesus Christ who is the blessing who will really restore us. He is the real hope that we have. He is the real cleanliness that we're looking forward to. Some of us, we're thinking about, like, oh, this whole temple that is torn down. Like, oh, man, it's never going to work out. Or, man, if they were only able to fully build the temple, then everything would be great. That's a lot of us, our mentality, right? If only I could really read the whole Bible. If only I could really pray every single day. If only I could really become as faithful as, you know, those leaders or that salt community or whatever, and then I could really experience that hope. And you're all making about what? Your works-oriented mindset again. But who is the real temple? Who is the real temple in the story? It's Jesus. Did, did God really think that that physical temple that was going to be built was going to last? No. What did Jesus say when he walked the earth? He said, what? I will tear this, I will destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it again. And what was he referring to? He wasn't referring to the physical building. He was referring to himself. He was referring to his own body that would be crucified, and destroyed so that we could have life when he resurrects from the grave. That is the hope that we have. It was God himself who tore down the temple, his own son himself, so that he could resurrect his own son, the temple, the body, so that he can have new life, so that we could have new life. So that he is our holiness. He is our cleanliness. He is our foundation. He is our temple. And unless we know that this restoration is through Jesus Christ, the blessing is Jesus Christ himself. That is our blessing, not prosperity, not this wealth and health, not things going well in your life today, not you getting this wonderful job of your dreams, not you finding the best spouse of your life, even though we pray that would happen to you, relationship seminar, amen. Not that you would have the perfect children in your life and that they would be perfect and they would have no problems. None of that is promised by God. But what he promises is that he will bless you because of Jesus Christ. And if you hold Jesus as your greatest treasure, then that will be your restoration. That will be your hope. That will be your, your life, everything. And that's why Jesus, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm praying that we will know that. And I was going to end it here, but I just felt like 
it doesn't actually end there because true restoration is not just about God's grace and us receiving it. But lastly, it's also about purposefully blessing others. It's purposefully about blessing others. And I'll just close out with this last verse. Because Haggai, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. And many of us, we take God's grace in a cheap way. We're just like, it's all about me. I'm just going to be blessed. I'm going to receive. But if the Israelites, when they heard that, they would have known that that word, that blessing, was not just for them. Because there were promise given not to them. That, that promise would echo the promise given to many generations before them. To, to David and to Solomon and to the, the patriarchs before them. To Jacob, to Isaac, and then to Abraham. I want to read that promise as we close out in Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3. It says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that what? You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, what? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless you is so that you can be a blessing. I will bless you, God speaking, I will bless you so that you can bless other people. Because the purpose of blessing you is so, not so that you can just sit around and live in this Christian bubble Sing your Christian songs, do your Christian Bible study, go to your Christian life group, is so that you can be a blessing to someone else. There's so many people out there in this world who have never heard about Jesus Christ, they've never trusted in Him, and they're broken, and they're lost, and they're in need of restoration. And we have that hope, and why would we not share that with other people? In fact, that's what we were created to do. And, church, I pray that we would not shirk that responsibility that we would take that responsibility, we would take that calling, we would take that purpose to say, yes, I'm going to be part of your plan to be a blessing to someone else. We've been talking about Easter so many times the last couple of weeks. And I think for some of us, it still hasn't clicked to realize Easter's not about me. It's not about you. It's, yes, it's about our sin. Yes, it's about Jesus giving us hope. But it's not just about giving us hope and leaving us there. It's about commissioning, commissioning us out into a broken world to be the hands that will heal, restore, and bring life to the city. And I'm praying that we would not just sit there and say, okay, someone else is going to reach out. Someone else, my life group leader, my, my, this, all those other committed people, the pastors are going to reach out to people. The pastors are going to preach the gospel. Uh, just a side comment. Some of us, we do this like invitation gospel thing where we bring people and we're like, oh, the pastor is going to preach the gospel to them. Yes, we will. But you have to preach the gospel to them. It's your story, it's your hope that has been given to you through Jesus Christ that you have to tell them as well. As they see that in your life, I'm praying that they would see that experience, that restoration, that hope, that promise that we've experienced personally for our, our, our lives and ourselves as well. And that's my prayer, and that's why the one thing is that restoration is God's inward work in us so that we can be an outward blessing to those around us. I want to give us just a couple next steps. First is just check your heart. Just check your heart. Do an inventory. Do that reflection. Do that prayer time. Do that meditation. Check your heart. When something happens, when someone asks you a question, don't get so defensive. Don't be like, why are you asking me? Like, I have good intentions. Just check your heart. Be like, okay, wait, wait a second. I need to do some inventory. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing right now that I need some time to process and then realize maybe there's something off. So check your heart. 
Second one, commit to turning back to God. Just make that commitment. I know we're going to fall time and time again, but commit to say, God, like, I, I need you. And, and I want to turn to these other things. I don't want to turn to media. I don't want to turn to relationships. I don't want to turn to career. I don't want to turn to all these other things that will lead me to destruction. I want to turn to you. And that you might need to set aside time to do that. It, may, it might not come naturally for us because we've been turning to these other things so often. But set aside that, carve out like an hour a week, carve out 10 minutes a day. Say, God, I want to turn to you in that moment. Thirdly, cling to God's grace. Cling to God's grace. So many of us, we've been so wired and so conditioned to be so works-oriented, self-sufficient, self-righteous. I think we really need the grace preached to us over and over and over and over again. Even if it's like, you know, I was talking with um, some friends and my old roommates, and I was asking them, like, we had this little card on the mirror that we did because uh, I just put a Bible verse there because every single morning as I wake up, I'm like, okay, I got to read that verse. It reminds me of God's grace. And I heard, like, even though I don't live there anymore, the, the card is still there. <laughs> Hopefully it's a reminder of God's grace to them as well. Right? Do something like that. Stick it on your wall. As soon as you, first thing, you, make it your wallpaper. Cling to God's grace. Whatever is going to help you remember, that's not about what you do. It's all about what God has done. And then lastly, collaborate to bless others. Collaborate to bless others. Find ways to reach out, to serve, to encourage. Use the, the time. Many of our life groups are planning different outreaches. Find ways to do that. Find ways to do that. Still, I mean, I'm, not, I'm trying to not discourage you to invite people. Still invite people, but as you invite people, also preach and share the gospel with them and work together with your life group. See it as partnership. If you don't know how to share your faith, ask someone. Like, hey, I, I don't really know how to share my faith. I've never done this before. Can you teach me? And I think that those are really going to help you in so many ways. One thing I wanted to do is uh, just for those of you who have been part of our church, you, you might know the four R's of transformation. I just wanted to show you that these are the very same things. Check your heart is realizing, committing to turn back to God is repenting, clinging to God's grace is receiving, and collaborating to bless others, recommitting to do what God has called you to do. It's nothing new. It's just the gospel message. It's the Bible. And I'm praying as we recommit to doing this, as we remind ourselves, this is what, is what God is doing in my life. This is how we're going to see real, true restoration in our lives, and we're going to experience great things. Can we uh, stand together? I want to just invite you wherever you're at just to stand, and we're going to respond. And I feel like, yeah, we, we talked about a good amount of things today. But I think one thing that if I were just to leave us with is it really comes from a humble heart, a heart of humility that we have to enter into. If there's any kind of pride, if there's any, like, resentment, bitterness, any of that, then it's really going to derail us. We're not going to want to check our hearts. We're not going to think it's a heart issue. We're not going to want to turn back to God. We're not going to want to receive God's grace because we're not going to feel like we need it. If we are stuck in that proud state, then maybe the first thing that we need to do is say, God, I need you. I can't do this without you humbling ourselves that way so that we can actually come to God. So the band is going to sing a song. I'm going to give us just a minute, minute and a half or so, just to pray that prayer on your own. 
and just pray and say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this without you. Help me. Help me experience this true restoration. Help me to see that it's a heart issue. Help me to see, help me to turn back to you. Help me to receive your grace. Help me to bless others. As we lift up that prayer, I, I really believe the power of prayer, something's gonna happen this week as we pray that in faith. Can we just do that just for the next minute, minute and a half? So just pray that prayer and then we'll sing a song. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.